following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, The Good Dinosaur, Toy Story, Finding Nemo, A Bug's Life, Cars, The Incredibles, Zootopia, Space Jam, SpongeBob SquarePants, Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, Stranger Things, For All Mankind, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Hocus Pocus, Sister Act, and The Expanse. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or cockroaches that survive literally anything. Uh, I'm your host, Luigi, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week I'm talking to Brendan Black from the Talk Ag to Me podcast. Welcome, Brendan. Hey, thanks for having me, Louie. So, um, Brendan, why don't you tell the listeners what movie we're going to be talking about today on Robots vs. Dinosaurs? Awesome. So, yeah, so this is one of my favorite movies from childhood. It's a movie that I think for some reason gets left out of conversations quite a bit. People tend to forget about this one, but I think it's just a fantastic movie. And that is Disney Pixar's WALL-E. That's right. WALL-E from 2008. It is, it is weird that people don't talk about it more, especially because it won Best Animated Feature when it came out in mm-hmm. 2008. Um, this is one of my favorite movies about robots. It's one of my favorite movies about speculative, um, a speculative, like, that's what am I trying to say? Speculation about the future of our planet and, like, essentially mm-hmm. what we're doing to our planet. I think it's an incredibly... It's troubling, but it seems very accurate uh, for for where uh, it seems like an accurate prediction for where we're heading um, as a species. Uh, but you know, hopefully, maybe maybe I'm wrong about that, and maybe you can dispel some of the notions that I have about it. Um, so, Brenda, but first, I'd like to I'd like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, you mm-hmm. and I have had a really great conversation about another Pixar movie in the past on your podcast, Talk Ag to Me. Um, so, why don't you tell them? what Talk Ag to Me is, and uh, maybe some of the things that we talked about on your show. Yeah, definitely. So um, like like Louis said, my name is Brendan. I'm the host of the Talk Ag to Me podcast. Uh, I've been doing Talk Ag to Me for about three years now. And that podcast is all about connecting people who uh, don't come from an agricultural or rural background with agriculture, basically teaching people where their food comes from, answering their questions about food and about agriculture and, you know, to what technology is involved in it, the methods that we're using today, legislation, all that kind of stuff and trying to make it fun. So I connect agriculture to video games, movies, TV shows, pretty much anything I can think of. I've done episodes on the Martian. Uh, like we just said, the good dinosaur I actually did an episode of, uh, Wally myself on my podcast. Um, if you're looking for a more in-depth conversation about the agricultural connections between, you know, Wally and, and the real world, uh, that episode might, you know, might, uh, pique your interest, but yeah, it's, it's a podcast that I've really just kind of started as a passion project because I'm currently studying to be a high school agriculture teacher and I'm using it as a tool to kind of my ability to convey information about agriculture to those who may not have that information readily available. Like most, you know, like I believe most people should have. Mm. That's really cool. Uh, so you're kind of, you're kind of educating people about, um, agriculture, about where their food comes from. Uh, is a mm-hmm. phrase that, that you like to say a lot on your show. And uh, and I think that's really cool because a lot of people should be more connected to, to those kinds of things or have a little more awareness. And I do think actually 
um, people that I talk, I live in, a, I live in a big metropolitan area. I live in New York city and people do kind of like my friends and I do kind of talk about like, where do you get your produce? Do you have a recommendation for like a good fruit stand that you know of? Mm -hmm. um, I happen to have just moved to a new apartment a few months ago. And one of the big draws for me for this apartment was it's right next to the produce stand that I used to like take a few extra stops on the train to get to um, because they always have just the best stuff in the neighborhood. So I think it's really cool that you're able to tie that into pop culture and to other things that people understand really easily. So um, I think I think what you're doing is really great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, on the on, when I was a guest on your show, we talked about the good dinosaur and we talked mm -hmm. about dinosaurs a lot, obviously. And that was kind of a perfect uh, blend of the two things that we both do on our shows, because, you know, the, the movie very, very flagrantly depicts dinosaurs creating agriculture and farming techniques um so this movie wally -E, one of the big questions i like to ask my guest uh, depending on the, the whether we're reviewing a robot movie or a dinosaur movie um is the big big question uh in your words brendan what is a robot mm, that's a great question um i I would say that a robot, by at least the definition that I'm most familiar with, is a an automated consciousness. So an, an AI, you know, an artificial intelligence, um, being contained within a usually a mechanical body of sorts. You know, a, a non-organic being. Um, and at least from what we've seen from you know from pop culture and stuff, robots tend to have some level of personality to them, or else they wouldn't be entertaining to watch. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't consider just anything that's mechanical and can function on its own a robot. Like I wouldn't consider our phone or our computers robots um, because they're not self-autonomous. We have to turn them on with to get them to do things. Um, like the like the robots we see in Wally, -E, they're entirely autonomous. They can do their own thing. You know, they turn themselves on and off. They charge themselves. They do everything on their own accord. And that's what I would consider a robot be a, a self-operating mechanical body that contains some sort of AI. Very cool. I agree with that definition. Um, so in this movie, Wally is Wally is our main character, and uh, our I'd say our second biggest main character is another robot named Eve. And one one of the most remarkable things about this movie is how much of it is uh, lacks dialogue, or at least human dialogue. That you know the the robots talk to each other in their own sort of beeps and boops that are that somewhat sometimes resembles language and sometimes it is um it is explicitly language occasionally like they say the word directive to one another as both a question and an answer uh, and things mm -hmm. like that but um it, for the most part at least like i actually wrote down when i was watching it last night it it's 39 minutes before we get our first character human character in the movie speaking human language prior to that we get like recordings that wally is obsessed with um that have human speech in them but it's absolutely remarkable to me that this movie and for half of it it's almost like a buster keaton or a charlie chaplin silent film with just a lot of physical comedy um mm. so i i, I love what you said about how like the robots in pop culture and movies tend to have personality and it's remarkable to me like how much personality these robots have without barely even saying anything. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, and, and like you said, that was actually a point I had in, in my notes that I wanted to bring up, which was most of the movie is driven by 
you know, non-dialogue conversation. You know, it's, it's, there's this non-verbal stuff that you can just tell just by looking at Wally, what he's thinking and how he feels about the situation. Um, you know, we, we get the entire backstory of, of the world and, and, you know, why the world is, is how it is without most of it being coming from a human, you know, mm. and Wally doesn't even comment on, on the world. He, we, we just kind of see him go to work and we realize what's happening. And that's how powerful this movie is. And in, in that it doesn't need to beat us over the head with what happened. It just needs to show us. And we automatically know, I think that's something that a lot of movies can kind of fall into the trap of is they have a lot of exposition. You know, they have a character that has to explain every little thing that happened just so the audience knows what's going on which in some cases needs to happen. You know, there are some movies that are a little confusing. You need somebody in there to kind of clear things up, but this movie does such a good job of telling such a very deep and rich story and something that's so relatable, especially in today's age. And it does it without even really needing to tell us anything. It just plays in the movie. You know, it shows some, some small interactions here and there, and we put the pieces together ourselves. And then the answer gets confirmed later in the movie by the captain when he's reading his log. Right, it's masterful storytelling. The um, the the director for this movie is Andrew Stanton, and mm-hmm. I was looking him up. He's done some remarkable projects, like uh, Better Call Saul, um, which is the 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 prequel. I almost said sequel, but it's technically a prequel to Breaking Bad. Um, mm-hmm. Stranger Things. He's done uh, several other Pixar movies, like Finding Nemo and A Bug's Life. So he's he's really good at these big concepts or using these very non-traditional characters to tell stories in, in a certain way. Uh, and I think it's really cool. I'm really impressed with him. Um, yeah. The, the, uh, the stars in this movie are a lot of our typical um, Pixar stars. Uh, a lot of voice actors that show up in a lot of other Pixar movies, like John Ratzenberger, who I think is mm-hmm. literally credited in every Pixar movie. Probably. Um, ben Burt. I looked up Ben Burt and he is the voice of Wally. He also does a lot of um, sound effects for Star Wars. So this okay. is kind of directly in this guy's wheelhouse. And uh, one other actor that I really want to mention is Kathy Najiri. And I only want, I only want to, uh, sorry, I mispronounced her name. Kathy Najimi. Um, she plays Mary, one of the two, one of the, well, I'd say we get to know three human characters in this movie. Mary, John, and the captain of the ship. Um, right. And Mary... The reason I'm pointing her out is because I just thought it was really funny when I was looking up who is this voice actress. She was also in Sister Act and she was also in Hocus Pocus. And in both of those movies, she played a character named Mary. So I think that might be like a little cheeky inside joke that Pixar did when they were like casting her for this character. Um, Because they (laughs) could have called her anything, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, So in your words, because you might, I think you might have a more positive outlook on things than I do uh, in, in like, in terms of like, like the planet and, and vegetation and Mm -hmm. um, just things in general. I, I feel like uh, what happened over the 700 years in this movie that we see, like when it catches up to where Wally is currently is in my words, the inevitability of what we're doing to the planet. But would you, would you agree or disagree with that? Would you say that, what we see in Wally is going to happen, or is it is it preventable? I think that Wally is a warning. I think that the movie is not trying to say, "Hey, this is where we're headed." It's more like this is where we could be headed if we're not careful. Um, and to that same degree, I think that even if Wally 
were to happen, you know, if, if the results of, of Wally happened to our world, there's some level of hope for starting anew. Um, I, I think that the reason for that is because we see, I mean, that's kind of the whole plot of Wally, right? Is they messed up so bad and now they're coming back to try to save earth. And from what we see in the post credits, we, you know, they do it. They, mm-hmm. they happen to bring plant life back. The chances of that happening are extremely low, but there's a possibility that could happen. And I'll explain why in a second. Um, but I think that the overarching message that Wally's trying to get across is, Hey, take care of the planet. You know, don't, don't pollute, don't, you know, build massive skyscrapers everywhere. Um, something that I found really interesting while I was watching the movie, I, I watched it again last night. Um, and while I was watching it, I noticed in the opening scenes where they're panning over the entire world and they're showing all the buildings and cities, of course, we don't see any greenery, right? There's no crops, mm. there's no trees, there's no plants anywhere. And that was part of the problem. Um, but I noticed there wasn't even any plots. There was no plots for land. There was nowhere mm. to even plant anything. You know, there was no, there were no parks. There were no gardens. There was nothing. Everything was a building or, or a road. You know, there were, uh, one, one of the things that we see Wally working off of is, is a broken down, uh, interpass, um, mm-hmm. or yeah. And like a broken down highway. Um, and like beneath it, we just see, you know, what looked like either canals or, or just other roads, you know, like we don't, we, we never see anything that suggests any level of a plot of land or anywhere where there was natural environment. It looks like the entire planet is covered in buildings and civilization. That's and I true. think that that, Oh, sorry, sorry. Especially sorry. When, when the camera pans out and we see it from space and it's so brown, mm-hmm. it's so remarkably like brown and orange and just uh, covered in like a satellite junkyard. Yep. No, exactly. And I think that that's the main issue with Wally. The main thing that they're trying to tell us is, hey, don't cover every inch of the planet in society. I mean, like, as we see, you know, technology does come a long way and it does benefit a lot of people. It's probably the only reason that they survived as long as they did in the first place. But I think the movie is trying to say that technology is okay. We can use it. We can benefit from it. But let's not let it control everything. You know, let's let's try to maintain at least some level of of connection to nature. And that was actually a big, you know, a big topic that I, I covered in my episode, which was the reason that Wally actually happened is not because of the amount of pollution that they had, like like the movie suggests. I mean, that's part of it too. It's because they got rid of all the plant life, so there was no oxygen left in the atmosphere. And that's mm-hmm. why when we see the, you know, the video of, of the old captain that was leaving, you know, leaving the planet, he couldn't breathe. He had to wear his mask whenever he had to leave because it wasn't because the, the pollution made the air so toxic that it was dangerous to breathe. I think that he says that in the movie, but I think a big part of it is that there's no plant life to produce oxygen. And if there's no plant life to produce oxygen, it's not that the air is toxic. It's that it just doesn't have anything that you can use from it. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was a confusion there because they eradicated all plant life, all agriculture, all nature for, you know, for their buildings. And that is what ultimately killed them at the end of the day. So how um, the, the when Wally discovers this one little sprout that is it, I think it's like inside of a refrigerator door or he has mm-hmm. to like cut through a, a, what looks like a refrigerator door to, to find it. Um, how do you think that one little thing survived? Or is that is this just the commentary on like the, the resilience of plant life in general? So I'm, I'm glad you asked. This is something that I was kind of freaking out a little bit over last night while I was watching the movie, because in all the times I've watched this movie, I've never really thought about it until because this, this was the first time I'd watched it since I did my episode. This got me excited because I have a theory as to how this happened. 
So first of all, for some reason, I completely forgot that Wally's the one that puts the plant in the boot. For some reason, I thought he found it in the boot, but he actually digs it up and puts it in the boot, which I think is really funny. <laughs> but it shows that the plant doesn't just grow anywhere. It actually was growing in soil, and he's the one that transplanted it. And I think that's important because most crops won't grow just anywhere. I mean, crops are very picky and they're very difficult to, to, you know, get to germinate and to get to grow at all. And to grow inside of a boot would just not make very much sense for most crops. There's no advantage mm-hmm. in them for that. Um, I think what happened was, I'm sure you've heard of, of the seed banks. It sounds like, it sounds like a familiar concept but can i ask you what that what those are sure so so there are i i believe they're confirmed at this point but maybe not um at least maybe it might be a conspiracy theory but i i was Hmm. pretty sure i heard that they were an actual thing but the 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 world that i think it's the un maybe has seed banks you know where they store seeds of every crop in the world and you know they're supposed to be in case of emergency in case you know some crop that we need uh, dies out or in case we need to go inhabit some new planet then we take these you know the seeds from our seed banks and we plant them and that you know now we have new crops Smart. what i think happened in wally is that because we so we know that they haven't been to earth in 700 years something along those lines mm-hmm. um almost 800 years i think it is what the captain says um I think that they have been shooting down because one thing that never made sense to me is that they send these Eve probes hoping to find some level of plant life on earth. Well, if they knew anything about earth, they would know that plant life's just not going to grow unless they are started. You know, Mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to just find a random seed that happened to grow over the course of 700 years because seeds just don't do that. You know, they don't wait that long. It would have to be some kind of foreign you know, you, you either you have to have life from another planet that brings it over or it has to be like a meteor just somehow had a seed in it or something like seeds don't just go dormant for 700 years and then all of a sudden pop up. Hmm. So what I think they did is they've been shooting seeds at Earth for all this time and sending down probes to see if they're growing or not. And I think because that, that was another thing that didn't make much sense to me about the end of the movie, whenever they grow all the grass and everything back, they only have one plant and that plant's not a grass plant. So I don't know where they got grass. So what I think is happening is that they have a storage for all these different crops and, and, and seeds on the ships. And they just have been shooting seeds back at earth, hoping that one of them grows and they send Eve probes back down to check on those plants. And eventually one actually grew and Wally's the one that found it. When Wally and Eve are leaving the planet, and I, I was just talking, I was talking about this a little bit earlier. We get that wide shot of how bleak and desolate the planet looks and how drained of, of color it is. Another another thing that stood out to me is he kind of goes through like there, there's almost like a, a cloud of satellites all around the planet that mm-hmm. um that are just you know floating dead, like none of them seem to be functional. But I wonder, feeding into your theory, I wonder if maybe that's like part of they, they put the seed bank on these orbiting satellites and so that they can periodically shoot them down into the planet side and see if they grow. I like that. That would make sense. Know, maybe, that's, maybe that's why there's so many of them and that they're completely yeah. surrounding the planet. Yeah, because I, I, I thought the same thing. I thought it was really weird that they just happened to have, you know, just hundreds of thousands of satellites for seemingly no reason. I mean, hmm. even right now on Earth, we don't have nearly that many satellites and we don't need that many satellites. Like, I 
don't see what the purpose of having all those would be, but that would make sense if they were, like you said, just shooting seeds down, you know, periodically to see if they can get some kind of plant life going. And I think, I think that going, you know, even further, I, I've kind of made a guess about what the plant is, the plant that the Wally finds, what kind of crop it is, and also why it suddenly grew after all these years. Ooh, what is it? First of all, I think it's corn. And okay. I, I'm going to say that because for one, it, I mean, it looks like a generic plant, right? Yeah. It just, you know, little, it's, 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 uh, it's called the cotyledon. You know, it's just a, a little stem with two leaves coming out of it. It's a very basic idea of a plant, something that we all see in like our, you know, middle school biology books. I think, because that's kind of what corn looks like when it's, when it's really small, it kind of looks like that little, you know, little stem with two leaves coming out of it. Mm-hmm. I think that they chose corn because for one, corn is the easiest crop to grow. It'll grow almost anywhere. It's incredibly resilient. You know, it, it can, it can survive pretty harsh conditions. It's quickly, it's, it's very quick adapting. It's one of the first crops that we ever domesticated for a reason. It's very, very easy to keep alive. So I think that that's part of it. I think that also they needed to know if they could grow food. So they had to pick a food crop that they, that they could grow because if they can grow grass, that's great. But what use is that to them until they can grow food? So they needed to know if it could be a food crop. So they chose, you know, one of the most common foods in the world, corn. And I believe that they would have the biggest supply of corn seeds over all other seeds because uh, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but in the United States for a period of time during hit, you know, uh, in, in, not recent history. It's been, you know, a couple hundred, I think it's been a couple hundred years. It was either 1800s or 1900s. I can't remember, but they, the government actually had to pay farmers to stop growing corn because we had such an overwhelming surplus of corn because it's so easy to grow. And because the corn market's usually steady enough that you'll not, you're not going to lose money by growing corn that we just had so much of it that we had nothing, you know, we, we didn't know what to do with it. So, mm-hmm. if, so the government literally had to pay farmers to not grow corn just so we wouldn't have such a surplus of it. So that tells me that we would have just an overabundance of corn seeds just ready to go. So I think that, you know, they're using, which this doesn't matter at all for the plot. I just think it's kind of fun. Um, But I think that they're using corn to try to test to see if the, if the soil is ready for for crops to grow again, if they can grow food sufficiently. And if that, if, if that crop will grow under the the harsh conditions of, of the current state of earth. I think it is important to the plot. I, I actually want to support your theory with evidence from the movie, which is that um, high fructose corn syrup is uh, seems to be the basis of all of their food at this point. Mm. There, there's literally a line um, when we get to the axiom and all we see how all of these people in the future are living. And uh, there's like an advertisement that's like time for lunch in a cup. And yep. <laughs> you, so you're just, I just imagine like the, that we just have all these dis, probably to us disgusting, um, like pastes and maybe like not synthetic, but, um, but fructose based, uh, corn syrup based, um, mm-hmm. drinks that they get all of their nutrition from that are just flavored to be like food. Uh, so the origin of that would be, you know, from corn processing, right? So mm. that, I think that's even further evidence that it's probably a corn seed. Yeah, no, I, I think that would, that would make the most sense. And I think I figured out why it took 700 years for this crop to finally grow. Okay. So one of the big things I was, I was talking about in my episode is that the reason that agriculture couldn't survive on, on earth after, you know, they basically just completely covered it in buildings 
is because if you destroy a soil, which happens whenever you create the foundation of a building, you destroy all of the microbiomes that live within that soil. Now, soil mm. is basically a living entity itself. It's it's not just you know dirt like people tend to think about. It's actually alive, and that's what keeps plants alive. So if you want healthy plants, you have to have healthy soil. Soil mm. is the number one thing that keeps the entire world going. This is somewhat of a recent discovery. I mean, technically it's not. We've we've actually found that ancient civilizations knew this and somehow we forgot it. And recently, soil science has become an upcoming thing because we realized how important soil is and that we need to be preserving it, not destroying it. Anyways, though, if you destroy a soil, let's just say you build a, a building on top of soil and then you tear down that building and tear out the foundation, you can't grow anything on that soil until it regenerates. It takes roughly 500 years for just an inch of topsoil to regenerate. And so it would take presumably around seven to 800 years for soil to be anywhere close to being able to grow plants again. And that's around the timeline that we see for earth to be returning or for the axiom to be returning to earth. And so I think that they have been shooting seeds down this entire time, but until Wally was able to clear away some of the the rubble and leave some space open for a, a seed to properly germinate. And until those seven to 800 years have passed and, and the soil has regenerated to a point where it can actually sustain a seed, they were unsuccessful. But mm. all of a sudden a plant grows and it grows inside of a fridge, which doesn't make much sense unless you consider it was growing in a little mound of soil that looked different than the rest of the soil in, that we see on earth. And I think that's because that soil has finally regenerated enough to be viable for crop growth. Something I think is re- that's really interesting about Wally's design is that he's solar powered, and that's part of the explanation mm-hmm. for like how you can imagine um, this this robot's lasted seven centuries on you know doing his job on this planet um, is that we occasionally see him get, getting low on energy, getting low, running low on battery, and as soon as he's exposed to direct sunlight, he recharges, and we get that positive chime. Um, and I think that there's a direct parallel to that between mm-hmm. you know this 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 robot that requires the sun, just like plants require the sun. Um, I have a very ignorant question that I think you you would definitely (laughs) know the answer to before he cut away the door uh, that, that seed wouldn't have been able to get direct sunlight. So does a seed, does a seed need sunlight or does a plant not need sunlight until it sprouts leaves? Like, does it need sunlight in in the first place to sprout leaves or does it only need them need need that for photosynthesis after it has sprouted leaves that's actually a really good question so it sunlight only becomes necessary when photosynthesis is possible and photosynthesis it takes place entirely on the leaves so until a seed has leaves it really has no purpose in needing sunlight so i i believe that there's a possibility that this seed has been germinating this whole time i'm not quite sure where it's been getting nutrients from, but maybe some kind of microorganisms have been rebuilding themselves in the soil and and have been kind of feeding this seed and somehow it's getting water. There must be a water bank underneath there or something. I'm not quite sure where, but somehow it's getting water and the seed must have to a point where it's, it's at the earliest stage that it can be before it needs sunlight. And it must've just gotten stuck there because it Mm -hmm. couldn't get to the sun. And I'm guessing somehow Wally just came just in time and cut it open before the plant began to wilt because it looks like it's still in pretty decent condition by the time he gets there. And yeah. plants don't survive super long without photosynthesis. So 
I'm must have been just, you know, really lucky timing. But yeah, no, to, to your point, the the plant shouldn't have been able to survive without without sunlight. That's why I think that it must have just like just barely reached that point of maturity and then stopped until Wally found it and was able to get. It's interesting. Does the presence of a cockroach imply anything about plant life or about the ecosystem? Like, do uh, do do cockroaches require vegetation or anything to or the microbes in the soil to, to be able to survive? I actually, I, I hadn't considered that until we were talking about the, how the seed could possibly germinate. I think that that's actually the case. I think that, so cockroaches, they're scavengers. They'll eat whatever they can get their hands on. And I'm pretty sure, you know, Wally's pet cockroach has been living off of Twinkies his entire life. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, uh, By the way, awesome, do you know the cockroach's name? I don't. It, it does he have a name? Yeah. It, it's never said in the movie, but in the credits, it's Hal. Hal, that's funny. Mm-hmm. I like that. Is that a reference to something or is it just 2001 a space odyssey and which the, the oh, auto yeah. um, robot is also a direct reference to that. So this is right. Yeah. You can see where a lot okay. of the influences for this movie came from. Yeah. I, I knew that auto was, was a reference to, to how I didn't, I didn't realize that that would cross over to the cocker. That's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so he, he's been living off of Twinkies his whole life, but the fact that he exists proves that there's still some level of life on earth, right? That we have at least microscopic, you know, bacteria, you know, alive because that's what's keeping his body alive. Um, and so that wouldn't, that wouldn't be too far to assume that there's probably still microbacteria in the soil. So now I know it's different, you know, it's going to be a different, it's going to be different bacteria to keep him alive versus a, a crop. But the fact that we have some living being on earth proves that, there's still some level of microbial life active there. And now, now these microbes, they could have gone into hibernation for all these hundreds of years. That, that much I, I could see being possible. Um, or maybe they just went very, very deep underground and they've just been repopulating underground you know, ever since then and started to come back up. But I think that how actually proves that this plant is not only possible, but that it's probable because he's been able to survive all this time, not just on Twinkies, but he's had to have some source of water. I would assume he's had to have some source of, you know, of, of, you know, microbial life to, to sustain myself off of because cockroaches, like, like I said, they are scavengers, but they've still got to be able to regenerate themselves. And I'm sure that they can get sick. I'm sure that, you know, they can, they can have all the same things happen to them that happen to most other, you know, animals. So I think that, yeah, I think that how kind of proves that, that the plant would be viable because he's, you know, he's the living embodiment of what's alive still on earth. Awesome. Uh, I have another question about the plant, and it's one of my big three questions about this movie. Um, so okay. why don't we jump to the section of the podcast that we call Lose Big Three. Um, I can't play it right now, or if I did, it probably wouldn't, it, it might not work over like Zoom, but um, there's going to be theme music that's going to play, Lose Big Three. It's sung by my friend awesome. Ryan. Uh, <laughs> so when you listen back <laughs> to the episode, you'll hear that. Um, awesome. So. Lose Big Three, it's you and me. We're going to have fun with Lose Big Three. Lose Big Three, number one. Uh, Would a plant survive the vacuum of space? There's a scene where where Wally gets shot out of the Axiom and he has the plant and he's in uh, an escape hatch um, and he ends up with, I think, like a fire extinguisher that lets him propel himself through space. But he has the plant there and he, like, passes it to Eva and it is for at least a few moments, 
just exposed entirely to the vacuum of space. And I was wondering, like, would it be able to survive that? And if so, for how long? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I would say no. I think that plants cannot survive the vacuum of space um, for an extended period of time. What that period of time looks like, I'm not sure. I mean, we know that in humans, it's almost instantaneous. You know, they will freeze over and, and probably explode, you know, because of, of the pressure. I think, I think that something similar would happen in plants. I think that, you mm. know, they have, they have vacuoles inside their cells, which are basically giant water bubbles. I think that those would all probably burst and that would pro- that would probably cause the plant to either immediately wilt or explode to some degree, or maybe just freeze over. I'm, I'm not sure what would happen to the plant cause we've never tried it, but that would be my my guess. And I, I, you know, even though they don't need oxygen, they still need carbon dioxide to survive, which neither one of which are, are present in, you know, the vacuum of space. Mm. So I would say that plant would not be able to survive for very long. They probably like, it was probably that length of time between Wally passing it and Eve, uh, Eve catching it. And that's probably the, the longest it would, would have been able to survive before it started to be, you know, crushed by space. But you know it's it's a movie, so they probably couldn't couldn't do that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I that that'd be that'd be my guess. I, I actually don't know if we if we have much research on that yet. Mm. I, th- I think with humans, we can survive like th- like three minutes or m- maybe even less mm. um, when if we're directly exposed. And if like because I think that there have been um, experiments where they've uh, not not exposed humans to it, but they've exper- mm. uh, exposed. Um, I think uh, there was a a Chinese astronaut experiment where they exposed organic matter to space and it lasted only about three minutes before it Mm. uh, completely wilted. Um, But yeah, that's, that makes sense to me. And, and yeah, it is a movie. So (laughs) Uh, I'm suspending enough (laughs) disbelief that, uh, you know, a, 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 um, what is it called? A waste allocation load lifter robot (laughs) is able to survive for 700 years um, and also, and also grip onto the side of a spaceship that's breaking orbit and traveling throughout the entire solar system. So I can, so I can spend up disbelief that the plant would survive <laughs> at least a, a couple of minutes before it needs to be brought inside the spaceship. That's fair. Lose big three. Number two, we're talking about the robots a lot. We're talking about, uh, their personalities. What would you mm-hmm. say makes Wally? And I'm, I'll include some of the other robots too, because they seem to they seem to um, they seem to exhibit a similar behavior, like Mo, the micro uh, what's it called a microbe obliterator, Mo, the little one mm. that's like with the scrubby arm. Uh, they seem to exhibit wanting. Like, what makes mm-hmm. Wally want? And I can be more specific with that question if that doesn't make sense. But what makes Wally want? Mm-hmm. That's huh. That's probably one of the hardest questions to answer about the whole movie because, I mean, we see, at least when the when the Wallies were first brought out, that they were all pretty much the same. You know, they're mindless; they just kind of do their thing. Um, what I think is happening here, is, I'll answer from from the scientific perspective first, and then kind of the more you know movie plot based perspective. Um, from from the scientific from the scientific perspective, I, I think that we're we're supposed to assume that, you know, Wally has been alone, you know, his entire life on, on this planet or not his entire life. He, he was, he's been alone since the other Wally's broke down. Um, but that he is composed of a learning AI because we see that, you know, he learns things, you know, he, he's very quick, quick to adapt, you know, compared to, 
compared to the other Wallies from what we've seen, it almost seems to me like as the other Wallies were dying off, he kind of figured out what was killing them, you know, whether it be the, the massive dust storms or maybe they got crushed by, by some, you know, trash or whatever, or maybe they didn't charge themselves enough. And I think that he's been learning how to do all of that and, and kind of taking, you know, either pieces of them or just kind of, you know, keeping his own pieces clean and adapted that way he doesn't suffer the same faith that all they do. And I think that he's learned that it's not just his job that's keeping him going. He doesn't just love cleaning up trash. He loves finding all of the stuff that he, that he gets to play with whenever he cleans up trash, he finds this you know extreme interest in humans and I think the reason why is because he's been watching all of those old movies and he's been, you know, learning about all the, all this old human stuff, even though he doesn't know how to, how it works, you know, until Eve shows him. But I think that as a learning AI, he's learning human behavior by watching it, you know, by watching the yeah. movies, by watching the, you know, the videos, by, by listening to the music. I think that he's kind of adapting human behavior because we see throughout the movie, you know, most of his behavior is based off of, either him loving Eve, which all the things that he watches are love movies mm-hmm. or him wanting to dance and sing the whole time. And again, everything he watches is a musical. So it seems like he's kind of adapting this because of learned behavior and what he wants is some level of purpose in the world, you know, and, and not just purpose because he has a job obviously, but he wants to, you know, he wants to be, like a person, you know, he, he wants to have a love life. He wants to show, you know, he wants to have friends. He wants to show everybody what he's found and what he's built. And, you know, cause we see, you know, as soon as he joins the axiom, everything he meets, whether it be a robot or a person, he goes over and shakes their hand and he goes, Wally. And, you know, he, he rides off cause you know, he's, he's adorable, but he's, I mean, he's just so incredibly curious with other things, not just living things, but things that are conscious that he just wants to share everything he can with all of them. And I think that's, you know, from the plot perspective, because he's been so lonely for 700 years, but from the scientific perspective, because he is a learning AI and because he's been exposed to human behavior and nothing else. And so he thinks that he's supposed to be like that. So I think that kind of explains Wally. And I would guess that the same is true for the other robots too, because they're around humans all day, every day. I'm sure that some of them have adapted some level of human behavior, at least, at least to some degree. That'd Ooh. be my my estimation. Yeah. I, what's really interesting is the humans' reactions to them. Like when Wally introduces himself to John, uh, he it's what's funny in that moment is that he's kind of he kind of like knocks John out of his chair because he's he's like crashing through this whole intersection, this busy intersection, and so he's objectively inconveniencing this person and. Um, you know, possibly injuring him. But mm. as soon as he goes up to him, John doesn't seem angry. He's just like, oh, nice, nice to meet you. Like there do- there doesn't seem as much as as much as these humans in this weird axiom society uh very casually just treat the robots like, hey, go get me that thing I need, or hey, do this thing for me because that's what you're programmed for. There doesn't seem to be like a class structure where they mm-hmm. see themselves as better than the robots. Like a, when a robot acts friendly towards them and is like, hey, my name is Wally, their response is, oh, cool, nice to meet you. And then later when yeah. he sees Wally doing things, he's like, oh, that's Wally. I know that guy. <laughs> uh, and I just think that's <laughs> remarkable because my expectation would be just because of what we usually see of human nature, especially in movies, would be like, hey, you bumped into me. Like, I'm mad at you, you dumb robot. But we don't mm-hmm. see any of that really. 
Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, we see throughout the rest of the movie that everyone who's kind of like logged into their, their screens and talking to people. I mean, we even hear, I think it is John um, before he gets interrupted by Wally having a conversation with a friend and he, you know, his friend says, Hey, let's go do this. And he's like, mm-hmm. I don't feel like doing that today. He's like, well, then what do we, what do you want to do? Yep. Like it, he almost sounds, you know, we hear some level of anger as if the humans only get mad with each other uh-huh. <laughs> because it, it seems like that, you know, you, you would think that being in that space for, 700 years they would get bored you know that they would they'd be tired of everything that's possible to do on the ship and that they would be angry to a degree but for some reason they're not you know they're almost impressed with wally and how human like he can be and maybe it's because he kind of reinstitutes a lot of the old values that humans used to do like shaking hands and like you know introducing yourself and making friends um that maybe it reminds them of how life used to be on earth and i know that most of them at that point have never been on earth so they don't know but maybe you know, there's just some level of familiarity that comes with Wally that kind of reminds them of how to be a good person. That's such a good point that I never considered that Wally is kind of like a time capsule that that represents what Earth was like, what society was like seven mm-hmm. centuries ago. So he's not like the fact that he's survived this long also means that he's bringing old customs and traditions that humanity may have lost by by living out in space and entire generations having been born over the past seven centuries out in space. Yeah, that's such a good point. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, lose big three, number three, since we're talking a lot about the people on the, on the axiom, on the axiom and, and what society looks like, what sorts of jobs do you, would you assume these people have? Like what is John's job? What is Mary's job? How much do they get paid? How do you determine how much these people get paid? Like, what do you, do you think that there's any sort of hint uh, as to like what sort of jobs they would be doing? That's, that's hard. Cause you know, we don't see any of them work. Um, right. I but mean, there is a mention, there must be an economy because there's an, there's a bit where the captain says you can get a free cupcake in a cup um, because it's the right. seven, uh, 700th anniversary of the Axiom's journey. Um, so like that, because it's a special day, you're allowed to get this free cupcake, which implies that normally it costs however much money, which like it, that just sent my mind racing on like, well, what is the economy on this ship and how does it function? And like, why, do they, you know, how do these, uh, if these people never get out of the chairs, what jobs do they do that the robots yeah, can, aren't, aren't, aren't just tasked with doing instead? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we don't really, huh. I mean, like, like I said, we don't really see them do anything, but the, mm-hmm. the fact that that that's really, I hadn't considered, like I heard, you know, I heard the the free cupcake in a cup and I didn't even think about that, but yeah, it, it wouldn't make any sense for it to be free if there was a non-free option, but what is there for them to do on the ship? I mean, the, the machines do everything for them. I mm-hmm. mean, maybe they just have savings, you know, from, from life on earth, but to last them 700 years, that doesn't sound super likely. Um, that and we don't and really, and nobody seems to have more luxury than anybody else. Like maybe we only mm-hmm. saw one deck of the ship and we don't see like how the upper class lives or, or anything like that. Right. Maybe this is like a Titanic situation. But from what I saw in, in what the movie showed me, everybody seems to have access to the same technology and the same, the same food options and things like that. But, but there's an implication that, that that might not be the case. Yeah. And, and we actually, we don't know, 
I, I was thinking about this yesterday too. We don't know where anyone sleeps. I mean, we know where the captain sleeps because he has his bed inside his, in like in his quarters, but we don't know where anyone sleeps. We don't know if they have, you know, cabins, if they have their own like little apartments, if they, you know, if, if they actually, you know, go to, you know, go back to anywhere at all, they might just sleep in their chair. Like we haven't really seen much. Yeah. yeah, We haven't seen much of the life of anybody outside of, you know, John and Mary and even they like barely get explored besides their, their little, you know, love interest that they've had going on the whole movie. But it, it's interesting because obviously life is being continued somehow. We see that there's babies, mm-hmm. you know, on the ship that they're, that they're being educated. Um, and we see that there's, you know, some level of, of maturity going on. It seems like humans are definitely living a lot longer than they normally would, but there seems to be some level of, um, you know, there, there, there's some level of, of advancement in, in life going on. So that would assume that they have some other purpose that they're accomplishing on that ship what kind of job they would have if i had to guess john seems to me like i don't know like i could see him being a cop if there were such a thing as cops hmm. i mean they have like the cop robot but like just yeah. his personality <laughs> you know like okay. kind of comes off as like this guy'd be a cop but if if none of them have traditional jobs if it's like some other kind of weird job i don't know maybe he like you know helps like I guess he like Mary maybe helping write some of the lessons for the kids because she seems very kid oriented, you know, okay. like maybe, maybe the robots are the ones that deliver the lessons, but you know, they have a team of people that help write them or something. Um, and then maybe John does like accounting or something. I, I don't know what you need to do accounting for on the ship unless he's like a, you know, he writes everybody's taxes or something, but um, it doesn't sound like there's a, there's a very large population. So it seems like the jobs would be, limited in terms of what they would need mm-hmm. but also you know that there would need to be some ne- some necessity for work just to keep them going every day that way they're not just bored out of their mind <clears throat> true the only person whose job is very clear is the captain uh, and he, even right. he is not really expected to do very much he he complains at one point the morning announcement is the only thing i get to do on this day, right. on this blasted ship uh, <laughs> and and, and it's, he seems a little bit frustrated by that, but also like, like everybody else has seemed to reach this place of just complacency and just, this mm. is the way it is. And this is what I was, I was literally born into this. I was born on this ship uh, and, and grew up and into this. Um, I also wonder how they, how they select who's going to be the next captain. I, they, I, was just, I was literally just going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah. Cause they show that wall of the captains and I think that's really interesting, but I wonder like, how do you, how do they decide? Is it like an algorithm? Does a robot decide that? What do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that the first captain was the president at the time, you know? Yeah. Um, and so he was the I'm CEO wondering... of the by and large company, right? Oh, it was right. Fred, Fred Willard. Right. That's, that's who it was. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if it was like, cause it, it doesn't seem like it's family oriented. None, none of the right. captains seem related to each other. Um, not, so we get all their names on their, on the, uh, the panel and another interesting mm-hmm. fact about them too, but go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I'm wondering if, if it's election based or if it's like, you know, if, if you kind of just get selected, you know, like if you, if you show promise during like your schooling or whatever, if they're just like, Hey, that kid knows his ABCs faster than the rest of them. Let's make him captain, you know, mm. like, or for something like that, I'm, I'm not really sure what their selection criteria would be. If I had to guess, I would say it's probably election based. Cause that'd be the only thing that would make the most sense if it's not family based. Um, but 
I don't know, that would suggest that maybe like there's some kind of political, you know, atmosphere in the ship, which doesn't seem to be super present, but you know, yeah. maybe, maybe there are other people who wanted to be captain that didn't get to, or who, you know, or maybe he was the only one, maybe it's like a, you know, volunteer thing. Like, He's like, well, if nobody else will be captain, I'll do it. You know, I'm I'm doing the same thing everyone else is doing. I might as well, you know, get get to be a, the the higher up of, of all of us. And he just gets to sit in the chair because nobody else said they wanted to. I I don't know. That's possible. It's interesting that he's the only person that we see in a cruise uniform at all. The rest of the quote unquote crew of the ship is automated. It's all robots. Mm. So the, there's not even like a path of advancement from you know you start out as as a junior sailor and work your way up to being the captain it just seems like well captain's the only human position on the crew there's the rest of the crew is all robots um right so i don't know maybe maybe we maybe we've discovered a detail that pixar didn't really uh <laughs> think out entirely <laughs> yeah but that, that could be probably not the, the other fascinating thing about the captains they show uh one two three four five six six portraits and they show the dates that they were captains from so the first mm. one was in the year 2001 uh sorry 2105 until the year 2248 which means that I don't know if that's birth till death or that's when they started being captain to when they stopped, but it's 143 years. The next captain span was 131, then 140, 124. I wrote, I, I did the math and the average uh, was 133 years. So this means mm -hmm. that either the human lifespan is like an average of like 130 something years at this point, or that's, or, or it's even longer and that's how long you're the captain for. <laughs> um, what do you think? Do you think yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that no matter what, the human lifespan has to be pretty extensive. <clears throat> Seeing that these people have been on the ship for, you know, hundreds of years, and it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of rotation. I mean, we we hear uh, during the captain's um kind of open opening protocol that he says that uh the the body count on on the ship hasn't changed and yep. he kind of just like brushes this off i was like oh yeah whatever so it seems like it doesn't change often it seems like people don't really die a whole lot people aren't born very often so maybe they just have a slower maturity than than you know humans today do yeah. like we see the babies on the ship so it seems it seems like you know life changing would be a the, like the, the number of lives on the ship would change somewhat frequently if there's babies being born, but maybe those babies are 30 years old. We don't know. I mean, they, they could just mature really slowly. Um, so it, it seems to me that, cause we also don't know. Yeah. So we don't really know how the medical staff works on the ship. So like if, if somebody were to get pregnant, we don't even know what that would look like. Um, so it, it seems to me that life doesn't change enough on the ship for there to be, you know, a lot to worry about in that regard. So people probably don't get sick very often. They probably don't have kids very often. Yeah. Um, which we would, you know, we see that's the case from the small population and the fact that they've been like in seven, I, I would, I would have to check the numbers, but in 700 years, our population on earth has like gone up exponentially in this ship. It seems like it hasn't gone up hardly at all. I mean, the population seems largely the same. So it would seem to me that, they probably live for about 200 years and maybe the 130 years is just their term as captain. Like maybe they can't run for captain until they're, you know, 
in their, like their fifties or sixties. And then whenever they run for captain, they're captain for 130 years. And then they retire for 10 years or whatever. And then at that point, they're probably too old, but we also don't see any old people on the ship. So I don't know. Yeah, this, this is a bit of a dark implication, but I wonder if there's population, con- like very deliberate population control because this ship can only sustain a specific number of, of survivors. So I wonder if like they plan when you're allowed to have children or who is allowed to have children um, and how many children you're allowed to have. I don't think a Pixar movie is going to go into the specifics of that ever. Um, But it is kind of like, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. The more I'm thinking about this movie is like, well, how do they, how do they maintain that exact number of the population on the ship? Because, um, because you're right, like naturally the, the natural course of nature uh, the natural course of nature. That's what a ridiculous thing to say. The natural um, uh, propagation of a species is that it, 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 it increases exponentially over time. It doesn't just reach a cap uh, and just level out on its own, right? It's, it's kind of a dark implication of the movie that, they're, that they're, the ship might have some form of population control, that it mandates who is allowed to have children, how many children you can have, when you can have children. Mm. Like, like you would only be approved to have children once a certain number of people have died of old age or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. I can see that being the case. I mean, the, the, the ship doesn't seem like it has much of a government, you know, st- system, but it does seem like auto has been kind of, you know, running the, running the, the operation for, you know, basically the entire time they've been in space. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, I'm sure he has some kind of plan about, you know, this is how many humans we're allowed to have on the ship. So this is how many humans we're going to keep on the ship. You know, whether that be, we're not going to let any more be born or if one of them dies, then we're going to have, you know, somebody have a baby and then that's it. We're not going to have you like, so it, it definitely seems like there's some kind of population control going on behind the scenes, which is really strange. Um, one, one thing that always kind of threw me off about the movie that I didn't realize is that um, I thought that they, their population was like really, really small. You know, like the, there was like next to nobody on the ship, which is true. Their population is pretty small for the ship compared to earth, but I never realized there were multiple axioms out at the same time. So there's like a bunch of ships like this that all have their own population. So the, the entire population of earth is out in space right now. It's just, we don't see all of it in the one ship that we see. So to me, that begs a question of, is every auto behaving like this? Has, you know, is, is every ship controlled by their population? Do they have a place like, you know, do they have another ship where they send the old people and they have a ship where they, where they have the babies or like, you know, do different ships have different purposes or are they all exactly the same? And we just happen to see the one that's like a paradise. That's a good question because, because the, the entire reason um, that, things go wrong at all in the movie is because of Otto kind of overstepping his directive a little bit. Uh, he He's one, you could argue that Otto is um, just doing a very, del- very literal interpretation of his directive, which is do not return to earth because it's too dangerous. But, he, but, but once there is the evidence of organic plant life on the planet that is supposed to be overridden. Like that, mm. that directive is supposed to no longer matter. But Otto makes the choice to, to have another robot named Gopher get rid of the plant so that mm-hmm. he can stick to the original directive that is his primary thing, which 
I think all, like based on everything else that we we I love that that when Wally comes on board, he's almost immediately put into this ward for malfunctioning robots because that establishes that 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 is a thing. Like sometimes these robots, their programming doesn't go 100 percent correctly. It needs to be either corrected or maybe they need to be broken down and rebuilt or something like that. So I think that 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 is is sort of an implied explanation for why Otto takes his directive so literally that he's willing to to hide this evidence that would make his job otherwise obsolete because he doesn't want to get deactivated or he you know maybe he's doing some sort of self-preservation yeah no definitely um and and it seems to me that you know you're, you're definitely onto something and that it's i think that one of the possibilities is that maybe he's just worried that if they go back to earth because he's stuck to the ship i mean he can't move from the ship he's literally connected to it so maybe mm. he just thinks that you know, he'll be scrapped and turned into something else or just completely left on the ship by himself. Um, it's, it's almost as interesting because if you think about it, he's kind of the opposite of Wally. He's Wally's foil, right? Um, because Wally has spent his entire life alone on Earth and Otto's worried about spending his entire life alone on the ship. And mm. if, you know, if, if his directive is not followed, that he will end up scrapped because he you know he either didn't do his job or he or he did his job you know too well and and now he's alone so it, it seems to me that Otto, you know kind of taking things into his own hands is is not i mean part of it is because of his directive yes but i think part of it is also because he's like we said earlier adapted some of that human personality that some of the other other robots have seen and now he's worried about his control being taken away i mean he you know he's a steering wheel at the end of the day his his entire job is to steer the you know the entire ship a particular direction and yeah. so i think that he's worried about losing his only job that he's ever known which is to control where everyone goes and we see that kind of illustrated in his actions in having go for you know get rid of the plant and in, in trying to lie to to the the captain and even fighting the captain and trying to keep him from following his directive, you know, which is return everyone home when it's safe. And yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, Otto's fears are accomplished. He's left alone on the ship after everyone gets back. Not only that, but his mind is kind of taken away from him because he switched mm -hmm. from auto into manual mode and he can mm -hmm. no longer be self self uh, governing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a little bit, a little bit tragic, but he kind of, uh, he, another way of looking at it is auto brought it upon himself. So <laughs> he, he did, he, I mean, he lied and he, you know, he completely defied his captain that messed him up. Yeah. Tried to start a mutiny. Um, the <laughs> captain, the captain is a really great character. I love that. As soon as he sees this plant, he gets so excited about the possibility of returning to earth and he starts exploring what that could mean. And he starts looking at these old, uh, old, like old, old media and, and pop mm -hmm. culture and, and things like that. And he gets really excited about like dancing. Um, one particular line that I thought was funny and I wrote down, uh, cause I knew that you were going to be my guest today was he says, uh, farms, farms are where people put seeds in the ground, pour water on them, and then they grow food like pizza. Um, <laughs> so in your experience, Brendan, is that, is that true? Can we grow pizza from seeds on a farm? Absolutely and awesome that awesome. that <laughs> no but that that is uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie just because of how again like like you said how excited he gets about all of it um 
and actually when I was doing my episode on, on Wally for my show, I uh, highlighted this part as a big part of my argument. Um, because basically the argument I was trying to make is that agriculture is foundational to society. You can't have a society mm-hmm. without agriculture because you need a source of food and you need some way of preserving natural life. Um, and so when he brings us up, I mean, literally the first thing he says is whenever he analyzes a soil sample, um, you know, the computer says it's, it's, it's soil, it's dirt, it's earth. And he says, define earth. The first picture that comes up is a picture of a farm. It's a picture of somebody, mm. you know, to, uh, you know, working on, on the field and plowing, plowing soil. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. The first thing the computer considers earth is farming. And then, you know, whenever he, like we, we skipped to see like the whole Wally and Eve scene where they're dancing in the, in this, in the space. And then Otto comes back. He's like, sir, what are you doing? And he's like, Otto, <laughs> these are farms. And he, he has this whole like, you know, nerd out session, which I related to quite a bit. Um, but he has that, that, that line of, you know, this is, you know, people put seeds in the ground and they put water on them and, and they can grow food like pizza. Like it, it, it's funny because, you know, we can write it off as like a, oh yeah, that's just, you know, you know, this guy who hasn't been around a farm ever in his entire life thinks that that's how farms work. The sad thing is I actually know people who think that's how farming works. They think that pizza just pops up on a tree. They don't, they don't fully understand that pizza is made up of several ingredients, all, all, all of which come from different crops or animals. And it's just, it's funny to me seeing that this movie is basically making fun of something that is actually an issue today. (laughs) and the people don't have that connection but that like that whole quote right there i should really like caption that quote and just use it for my show because that that line right there is the driving essence of my podcast yeah because because it also it also makes you consider like what what are these people's interactions with food and like where their food comes from because i when he says when he gets excited about pizza and and uses it as an example it's a picture of pizza. I don't think this captain has ever eaten pizza. I think that he's had pizza in a cup. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's had like a liquid smoothie form of of pizza maybe. Um, But I don't think he's ever actually tried this thing that like he's probably seen photos of, or maybe he's watched some movies where he's seen people enjoying pizza and seeing how how happy it makes them. Um, Mm -hmm. So do you agree with that? Do you think that like, that maybe that do you think that I'm reading too much into that one moment about the liquid food and assuming that that's their whole entire uh their their whole entire diet or do you think that that's just like a supplement that um in addition to them eating solid foods it seems to me like all they're eating is that liquid food I mean um I I don't know a ton about food in space but i know that you know that it tends to come in a different form whenever you know whenever astronauts have food um but i know it's not in a cup but maybe in you know (laughs) in 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 this aspect of of humanity they've developed that you know that preserved food so long that now they just need it in a cup you know they don't need the solid form of it anymore or maybe it's like you said maybe it is some kind of supplement that's just been flavored to taste like you know whatever food that they want to taste like so you're, you're probably right. The captain has probably never actually had pizza in his life. He probably has just tasted pizza through the, you know, through his straw and assumes, Oh yeah, this tastes real. I bet the real thing is, is even better. Or maybe mm-hmm. he thinks that is the real thing. And maybe he thinks that, you know, that pizza that he sees whenever he, you know, whenever he grows it on his tree is just going to pop up. Like, you know, it's just going to be in a cup or something. I, I, I don't know. But all I know is I, I, I can tell that, 
their connection to agriculture is very weak and that their, you know, their knowledge of how earth works seems to be very distant. So it makes me wonder, do they actually watch movies or TV shows or anything like that to try to learn about earth or do they just kind of live on the axiom and, and, you know, only consume axiom stuff. And that being said, you know, does that mean the movies just don't exist anymore? Cause I mean, that would require that some of the passengers on there are actors, you know, that they have, you know, the technology to, to record movies and stuff. Because it seems to me that the captain should know the most of anybody on the ship about anything that regards the axiom. And he knows next to nothing about earth culture. He doesn't even know what dancing is. So that kind of tells me that they don't have media anymore. Yeah, they definitely have an archive of media that Mm -hmm. he accesses once it's time to like start planning the voyage back to earth. But yeah, it doesn't seem like anybody is seeking that out or or that it's a popular form of entertainment or anything like that in the in this modern world 700 years later that's really interesting Mm -hmm. is it realistic that that we could reach a point with technology where all of your food could be in in a sort of synthetic or like paste form or do we um do we do we as humans like do we need to go is is there anything important about like us the process of us breaking down our food through eating it chewing it like all of that um, is that something that we need or could this realistically be a future where we could live in space and not have to grow food? Man, I hope not. Um, <laughs> I, hope I really not don't want to, <laughs> I really don't want to drink pizza out of a cup. Um, yeah. cause I'm, I'm, I'm weird about like, I don't even like smoothies and stuff. I don't like my food being ground up into liquids. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think that from a biological perspective, I mean, technically, yes, our bodies could handle it. You know, we, we could live entirely off of just like a juice-based diet. Um, huh. you know, where all of our foods get, you know, turned into juices because basically our body just needs the nutrients. Our, okay. our mouths need to be able to chew things to get stronger, but I mean, that's not super essential for our actual, uh, like health and stuff. As long as we're getting the nutrient or our body, we're fine. I mean, like technically you could probably live entirely off of nutrient supplements. I'm not saying you should, cause that'd probably be a terrible life, but you could do it. Um, because that's our, our it kind of functions like a computer and nutrients are just like codes. So as long as the codes are the right codes, your body doesn't care what form they come in. You know, it could be a, a PDF with, you know, like this massive essay on it and it just has that one code on it. And the computer says, yep, there it is. I got it. And you know, all the rest of the stuff just becomes extra. That's kind of, you know, whenever our body eats food, it takes in everything that that food's made of, takes the codes that it needs from it and turns the rest of it into waste or builds the rest of it on as fat, depending on what you eat. Um, so technically from a nutritional perspective, we don't need to chew food, but from a kind of cultural perspective, we do. Um, we, you know, throughout human history, we've established this very strong relationship with food and, and comes from and how, and how we consume it. Um, that's the reason that, you know, all the different types of food that we cook and, and the foods that we cook together and the textures and like all that kind of stuff becomes so important to us is because it's not just for our enjoyment for eating it, but some cultures, they develop food in a very particular style because that is, you know, what they consider a proper tribute to that food. So like, mm. you know, for example, consider a lot of animals very, you know, special beings. Like we, we, we don't just take advantage of animals. So if we're eating food that 
comes from an animal, we want to value that food. So if we're just drinking from a straw, it's a little hard to just appreciate, you know, the, the steak that we're eating. It's, it's a lot easier to take a bite into it and, and really like, you know, feel all the, all the things that come from that steak in our mouth and, and then say like, Oh man, this all came from a cow. I'm very appreciative of that cow for, you know, for, for providing me with this steak. You know, there, there's almost like an intimacy that comes with chewing our food and digesting it properly um, that our body, you know, our body doesn't, doesn't know the difference, but our, our mind does, you know, almost, it's almost like a, a, a more soulful experience to be able to, to eat food rather than to, 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 you know, just drink it. That's a really good point. I wonder if this method of, of getting nutrients into your body also means that there's less waste, which would be more efficient on a spaceship. Uh, that's probably, you know, not having all the extra material. So like, you know, with, with meat, for example, if you're just trying to get like the iron, the protein from meat, maybe if you just isolated the iron and the protein and consume that in a drink, you wouldn't have all the extra waste from, you know, the actual, the, the tissue that comes with actually eating the meat. That, hmm. that would make sense. Do you, um, do you watch the show, the expanse or have you read the books? Mm-mm, I haven't heard of that. It's uh, it's really good, like speculative sci-fi, like um, kind of ground, kind of grounded sci-fi. So like not like Star Wars sci- mm. sci-fi, but more you know more grounded in 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 real science, but still a little bit of fantasy. Um, mm. But one one cool detail, and it's a couple hundred years into the future, and and several generations have have at this point been born in in the various reaches of space or um, or on the planet Mars, which has been colonized. Uh, but one common common thing with um, food on spaceships or in the deep deep space space stations is a lot of it is based on fungus because fungus mm-hmm. doesn't require sunlight to grow. Uh, mm-hmm. So apparently they're able to process a lot of their food and make things like like steak flavored uh, mushrooms or like you know chicken flavored mushrooms. Um, do you think that's a realistic future, or is that like the expanse kind of taking some liberties with? with uh food science um i don't think that's out of the realm of possibility um i have heard uh theories in in kind of the agriculture sphere about us looking towards um more fungus based uh diets just because again that you know they are more sustainable to grow in environments that don't require sunlight Mm. um I'm, i'm not sure that that's the best route to take just because of how difficult it would be to grow you know, enough fungus to a large enough degree to be able to sustain such a large population. Uh, that, that'd be kind of the only limiting factor unless we got really, really good at growing them and we use some fancy technology and, and GMOs and stuff to make them really big because basically, so the, the, the reason that I think that all of these methods of, of, you know, foods, um, sustaining food supplies wouldn't work is just because, there are a lot of things that need to be taken into consideration to have a sustainable food supply and it has to meet nutritional requirements. It has to meet, um, you know, environmental requirements, but it also has to meet yield requirements. It has to be able to, to produce enough food for the population that it would need to sustain. And not all foods can do that sufficiently. Um, that, that's why we, that's why we grow the crops that we grow and we don't eat certain crops because they just don't sustain enough for us to be able to survive off of. I mean, like if we were trying to survive off of, you know, cotton plants, we use cotton for, you know, for, uh, for clothing, right. You know, we use it for fiber and for making different things, but we wouldn't eat the flour that comes from a cotton plant just because it's not sustainable. It really wouldn't do a whole lot for us. So we still farm that crop, but we don't use it as a food source just because that's not its intended purpose. So, but we do eat, 
meals. So that's why we grow corn so much, or that's why we grow different fruits, or that's why we grow different nuts, or, you know, because those those crops can grow enough of a particular product on one plant that it would be able to sustain a decent population. And we've developed methods, whether it be growing methods or, or, you know, uh, different types of, of technology or even, you know, genetic modification and different methods like that, that allow those, those crops to grow even normally would grow that way they can sustain even larger of a population. So if, if you can accomplish those three things, so, you know, nutrient, um, environmental, um, environmental necessity, meaning both does that crop hurt the environment and can that crop grow in, in almost any environment and also, uh, population, uh, sufficiency. So yields, if you can accomplish all three of those things, then you have a sustainable source of food. But the problem is all three of those things are not universally accomplishable on, all environments with all types of, of food. So people are like, yeah, we'll grow mushrooms on the moon. It's like, well, when the moon grow mushrooms. That's you, you miss that step, you know, or yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just grow Mars like in the Martian. Well, can Mars even grow potatoes? We don't know that yet. You know, we haven't, we've tested their soil. It's not super great for growing potatoes. And if it does, is it going to absorb negative nutrients from the soil? Cause their soil is very different than our soil. Is it going to produce some kind of toxic potato that's not going to be good for us to be able to sustain ourselves off of. Or again, like, like we talked about way back in the beginning of this conversation, the soil is everything. If the soil yeah. has certain things in it that we don't want, you know, like, let's just say Mars's soil happens to have like lead in it. I don't know it doesn't, but let's just say it has lead in it. And we don't know that we start growing this, you know, this population of, of, of potatoes that just doesn't, you know, it's completely useless to us because as soon as you eat, it's going to kill you. Or maybe the, you know, the soil can sustain potatoes for a little while, but it doesn't have enough nutrients in it to even sustain a large enough, you know, crop to, to feed everybody. So it's, it's not so much that certain crops are incapable of being used as like the next big thing. Like something that, that a, a lot of, um, your researchers are trying to do right now is figure out how to grow crops on the moon. There's actually a, an episode that I did with somebody who's part of that project They're you know, they're actually designing, Ooh. um, kind of like a greenhouse on the moon to, to grow crops, which I thought was really interesting. But one of the things they're hitting a brick wall with is because they can't figure out what crops to grow on the moon because the moon soil doesn't sustain life very well. So they were like, well, we'll just grow clovers. Are we going to eat clovers? Like, can, can we even do that? You know, like ha have you found a way to make clover sustainable for a large population? Because that's what we're going to need it for. So mm -hmm. it's, I, I think it'd be better to go down to not go down the Jurassic park, mentality of let's just see if we can for the sake of doing it let's let's look at this from the you know from the practical perspective of is this actually going to work large scale and keep everybody healthy makes sense as as uh as omnivores <clears throat> we can eat meat and plants but but a human could survive on an entirely plant-based diet right with no animal products at all is that true uh kind of of um there, there is a couple things that make that difficult um so there, there, there's two there's two primary reasons why a an entirely plant-based diet is not entirely uh realistic for humans uh for or for most omnivores actually because for one um it's just of nutrients in a in a plant-based diet you would need to eat a lot more material than you would in, a, in an animal-based diet so it would actually consume more product so like let's just say um, you know, cause protein is one of the easiest ones to go after, but if we take with iron, for example, cause iron's another one that doesn't get talked about a lot, uh, like spinach is high in iron, but it would take a lot more spinach to get 
the amount of iron you would need in your diet than it would to eat a steak, you know, for example. So it's, it's not so much that it's impossible. It's more that it would take more work and more resources than, than would be viable for a, a large population. If everyone were following that. And the other problem is that not all nutrients are readily available in plants. There are some that they may be present in plants, but we can't synthesize them because our bodies just aren't designed to. So like B12 is, is an, is a nutrient that we need to uptake, you know, to be able to uptake that way we can get our energy levels high. They keep like, um, uh, B12 is good for a lot of things, but it keeps your energy levels high. It helps your immune system. It helps, you know, it helps you kind of keep a positive mentality because food, believe it or not, actually does have a, a massive effect on your food and what you eat influences a lot of how you perceive the world. Um, so B12 is, is one of those really important nutrients that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's only present in meat. There's, there's no plant-based uh, source of B12 that's sustainable that, that, we, that we can get our, our daily intake of B12 off of. There are plants that have B12 in them, but either we can't eat them or if we do eat them, our bodies can't get the B12 out of it because it's just not designed that way. So often what we'll see is you'll have, you know, like for, for people who are following plant-based diets, you know, like vegans, vegetarians, all that sort of thing, which is perfectly fine. People want to follow that route. There's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of times they'll either be deficient in certain nutrients because they don't realize how much they need to intake to really get that, that same, that, that same requirement, or they are intaking a lot, but they're not realizing that the things that they need are not in the foods that they're eating. So you'll, you'll see a lot of them, they're yeah. deficient in B12. And oftentimes the only solution to that is taking supplements. So naturally, no, our bodies can't really sustain off of a, a pure plant plant-based diet. If you have supplements and, and other enriched foods, then sure, you can make it work. Um, it'd just be kind of hard on a, on the resource perspective. Yeah. I'm, I would assume that most of the diet in Wally is supplement based because I, I just thought of this just now, having seen this movie, I don't know how many times we never see an animal on the ship. Like it's not a Noah's right. Ark ship, the axiom. It, there's only people and robots. There might be a deck where there is cattle and livestock that we that they just don't show us, but there's no evidence that they're actually that they that they rescued the animals from our planet and, and took right. them uh, with us into space, right? Yeah, and that's something that I've I've thought about too. Is that I I don't know where they're getting their their meat supplements from. Um, so here I have a couple theories on how they're doing this. Yeah. Um, either one they just somehow slaughtered every animal on earth and used all of their resources to, to make the food that they have. And they've just had that same supply of food for hundreds of years, which I don't, I don't think is super likely um, because that means that they would have to, they would have had to have planned that far ahead. And, and again, when we look at earth from, from the view that we get to see in the beginning of the movie, there's no room for farms. There's no barns. Mm -hmm. There's no, and there's also no forests. So there's no wildlife anywhere. So it's all, if it's all city, then at some point they must have eradicated the last of the animals on, on earth or else they, you know, where, where, where would they put them? You know, there's, there's nowhere else to, to keep them if, if everything is city. So I think that the chances of them having that as an option were, were, pretty unlikely. The other option I think is, is a thing is that like we mentioned earlier, there's other axioms. I think that there might be an axiom that has animals on it. And we see that, you know, the axiom that we follow throughout the movie sends probes out all over the place. They send have escape pods. They have all this different stuff that's flying in and out of the ship. I think that 
sometimes they might send, you know, smaller ships like the one that Eve is, is transported in over to other axioms to get resources. So maybe that's where they Makes get, sense. you know, their protein, you know, for, for their, for their food or whatever, if there is an axiom that has animals or at least an axiom that contains all of the food that comes from the animals that they once harvested. Um, but that's the only way I could think of that even being possible. Otherwise I'm, I'm not sure how they do that without some sort of, of supplements that are synthetically produced. Awesome, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good theory that other axiom, like their whole might be a whole um, cattle axiom mm-hmm. or like, you know, cattle ran- ranching axiom. Um, I would love to see that. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I, yeah, I, I, do, I, there doesn't need to be a sequel to Wally, but I would watch it. And I think that would be, there, there's so much for them to explore that they could make several sequels. They, um, they did make this little short uh, called Bernie. Have you seen that at all? I have. I love Bernie. Yeah. It's pretty charming. It's yeah. It's that little uh, welding robot that um, mm-hmm. uh, gets accidentally locked out of the ship when when Wally comes back on board, and it right. uh, there, there it has its own little like whole adventure that runs concurrent to the events of the movie. Um, yes. Did you have Did you have a favorite robot in this movie? You know, I really love Mo. I think he's just hilarious. Yeah. Um. Because like you know, I, I one of the notes that I wrote down is that so obviously I love Wally. Everyone loves Wally. Wally's just adorable. You know, he's just this this funny little, you know, like the entire beginning of the movie, he's just like a middle school boy. He just wants to hold his crush's hand more than anything. And, you know, he's like showing her all the stuff to try to impress her. And he's like, hey, look at my Rubik's Cube and look at my light. And then like she turns it on and he like loses his mind because, you know, he, he thinks it's the coolest thing ever. Like he's, he's a mm-hmm. middle school boy and it's adorable. But then he goes on to the Axiom where everything's all clean and pristine and, you know, organized. And he's like this dirty little country boy that like, you know, puts mo- he, he puts mud marks everywhere he goes. And Mo is just like not having it. He's freaking out the entire time. And Mo's the first one that breaks protocol, right? Like he's the one that hops off of this track and follows Wally around the entire ship, cleaning him up. And it's so funny to me because later in the movie, when they're all like, you know, all the robots are trying to band together and, and work on, you know, taking down, Otto, Mo actually finally decides to help out Wally and he has like this little like <sighs> here and you know he like helps him out and it's, it's just the funniest thing seeing like their little dynamic going where like you know Mo is like this little OCD like he needs everything to be perfect he wants everything to be clean and everything you know his way and then Wally just comes in and wrecks all of it because Wally doesn't follow rules he does whatever he wants and it's mm-hmm. just, it's funny seeing that whole dynamic. So I just, I love how Maddie gets, I love his little personality. I love how, how like, you know, his little noises and stuff that he makes. And, and he's, and whenever they meet for the first time, Wally's like, Wally, he's like, Mo. And he like shakes his hand. It's, it's so funny. I, I, I love Mo and, and Wally's little dynamic. Mo, Mo is also my favorite. I, I uh, don't think we've said what Eve stands for yet, but it's extraterrestrial vegetation evaluator. Um, right. Which she, I love that. She, she's definitely the most advanced and like cool robot in the movie. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I actually, that's kind of not that it takes points away, but I think it's more charming when, when a robot is a little bit more analog or limited, mm-hmm. um, like how Wally has to, you know, move around on treads and Mo, uh, or Bernie, Bernie, by the way, stands for basic utility repair, nanotech engineer. Um, oh, <laughs> and also the, uh, the E in Wally, um, I forgot to mention, waste allocation load lifter. The E is for Earth class, which implies that there's like a wall M and a wall V and a wall J uh, for all right. maybe all these different planets. 
Um, but I, but I, yeah, Mo out of all of them, Mo is absolutely my favorite. And my second favorite is the beauty bot. I don't know its actual name, but the oh. one that's just like, you look great, honey. Uh, yes. <laughs> those are so funny. It has these like pre-programmed compliments that it just are its entire vocabulary and nobody yeah. even responds to them when it's saying those things. It's just like having a conversation with itself. That's all just like compliments <laughs> right. And like, yeah, and just like wrote sayings. And I, I just love that little touch. Um, yes. Yeah. If I had to pick a second favorite, I would say it's, so there, there's a robot that's, it's in the movie for about five seconds. It's in two, it's in, it's in two separate occasions. Um, and it, it's right outside the captain's quarters. And it's the one that types, you know, that it has like, it has the two little hands and it's just like typing the entire time on this little keyboard. Um, and whenever Wally first goes to the captain, uh, he sees it and he waves at it and the thing looks at him for a second and then waves back. And then after a while he goes in, he just sits there and looks at his arm for a while and starts waving. And, and it's like, he didn't know he could wave the whole time. And then whenever they yeah. leave, he's waving at Wally again when he's leaving. I just think that's so, that's so hilarious. I also love that, um, how human that robot was. I mean, all of the robots have such personality, but this one was mm-hmm. like, you imagine like, it, it was like the sloths in Zootopia that work at the yeah, DMV, yeah. right? Like, it just has that, like, what do you need? Like, kind of, <laughs> you know, very drum, <laughs> yeah. humdrum personality. Um, even its voice kind of reflects that a little bit. Um, did you notice right. that Sigourney Weaver is in this movie? I didn't, know. She's, uh, she's kind of the voice of, um, that talks to the captain and, like, and, and, and um, oh. describes things that he's seeing and, and, like, talks about, you know, the the journey to Earth and all of that. Um, huh. yeah. Wow. The, what else are you going to Oh, I was, was going to ask you, do you have any more, any more thoughts or any more questions, um, about the movie before we move on to my two last questions? Um, no, I did say, I didn't want to say one thing. I watching it again last night, I was like really paying attention to it. Cause I, I really wanted to catch details and stuff. And, I, I just, I, I don't know why I never realized how good the animation style is for 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it looks so good. Like, you know, the level of detail in the animation and like, you know, Pixar's, you know, really good with that kind of stuff. But this movie came out around the same time as Cars and it's just, it's so much more advanced in, in its animation style and it just it looks so like you know whenever eve is in wally's little bunker and you you see all the reflections of the lights and stuff off of her body it just it looks so good i just i I needed to point that out i was like dang you know pixar really did you know did a lot with this movie how do you how do you feel about them blending live actors like when we see fred willard um and he's you know getting on the ship with his breathing mask and some of the advertisements that we see with the way that humans are designed when they're actually interacting with the robots in the plot. And they're very clearly CG animation. Like, how do you feel about that blend of, of styles? You know, I'm usually not a big fan of blending uh, live action with, with animation. Um, it usually just kind of comes off as clunky to me and just doesn't feel right. It, like there's almost like a, like an uncanny Valley, you know, effect to it where it's like the real people don't almost don't look real. And the animations almost don't, don't look like animations. And it's just kind of, funky there's only a couple instances where it really works you know like space jam uh, the original space jam is is a good example this very cartoon with real life um Mm. so that you know tends to work pretty well but like you know like spongebob does it and it's really weird and spongebob does it and i love spongebob but it's just i don't i don't know why they have to do it like that 
but I think Wally does it well. Like Wally does it to a degree where it doesn't bother me as much. I think when I was a kid, I always thought it was kind of weird, but watching it back, it, it, it almost fits, you know, to a degree because I think the reason why I think it fits so well is because I think that it, it does a good job of telling the narrative in the way that I was theorizing at the beginning of the episode, which is, it shows the world from from the perspective that we knew it, you know, with real people. It shows how the world was, and then the animation part of it is like the what if, the like you know, the, all everything that's animated in the movie is like the warning part of it, and everything that's real is what we know and what we're expected to believe is is really happening. And so, I think that from an artistic perspective, using live action people in the movie, it looks a little strange when you think about it. Just you know, just watching the movie but if you think about it from the perspective of like the only time we ever even see real people are when they're trying to show what was like what it what it was like in the past then it makes it a little bit more edible to to watch that's a good point and and it stands to reason that just through evolution i mean they do mention the effects of like microgravity has formed us has mm-hmm. uh, caused us to lose literally lose bones and bone density um so humans would have evolved over time and would literally look different because we're, we're being born in a completely different environment and growing up entirely in that environment. So yeah, like maybe we would look a little bit more like cartoons several hundred years into the future. <laughs> yeah. There is actually, tech, now that I'm thinking about it, a third form of sort of animation in the movie for the end credits, they sort of mm. um, fast forward through us rebuilding the earth once the axiom does return with this sort of like mosaic montage, which is really, mm-hmm. really cool looking. Um, what do you think about, I guess I should have asked this earlier, but what do you think of like, uh, what, what do you think of that ending? Do you think that, how many generations would you say it would probably take if we found one little plant Um that we could reestablish uh, agriculture on the planet, or we could re rebuild everything that was paved over. If, if if everything went perfectly, assuming that one plant does repopulate and that we're able to use it effectively, and if, like my theory was, towards the beginning, you know, if we, we have other seeds to be able to grow other plant life, because obviously that one plant's not going to be able to turn into every plant we would need. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were able to do that, we would have to tear out most of the civilization that was already there. It would take a while. Um, so like I'm 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 gonna look at this from the perspective of Wally has already or the Wallies have already cleared away most of the rubble. You know, there's already a decent patch of earth that's that's regenerated. You know, the soil has has, has regrown to proper condition to to grow you know, plant life again. If that were the case, I would say it would probably take, I would estimate like five to 10 generations to get, to get earth back to a sustainable living point where agriculture is, is considered like part of society again. Mm. Um, because the first few generations would just be trying to figure out how to even do anything right like you know like the first generation would plant the seeds because that's all they know how to do they'd throw the water on it and grow their pizza trees um (laughs) but they would be trying to figure out (laughs) they'd be trying to figure out how to live on earth again you know they would still be trying to adapt to the gravity they would still be trying to get their bodies back in shape you know they would still be trying to figure out where you know how home is 
is home again. You know, the second generation might be kind of learning from them, you know, kind of learning how to rebuild society a little bit, you know, how to, how to kind of reorganize things. The third and fourth generation will kind of start, you know, start down the path of beginning to really plant things and, and really get, you know, agriculture going again, using technology to a, to a more sufficient, I don't think agriculture would be like perfected as, as a usable resource again, until probably like the fifth or sixth generations. And then like probably by the 10th generation, I would say like society would be back to a comfortable living situation on earth. You know, like that's, that's where I would consider like, you know, earth is technologically advanced, but agriculture is a big part of it. Nature is beginning to kind of reform. And just because of how long it would take for all of that soil to regenerate for all the natural environments to kind of come back, um, for them to truly clean up all the rest of the planet and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that that's in my opinion. So how, how long are we estimating a generation is? Uh, it's like, I, I, like every 40 years is a new generation, something like that. Okay. So yeah, I, I would say it would take, yeah, because five generations, that's, that's, um, was that 200 years? Yeah. That's about right for getting agriculture back to a, a point where it'd be almost, almost perfect. And then I would say probably another 200 years to get society back to the point where it was. So agriculture is being used, culture starting to come back, music, dancing, all that kind of stuff is starting to come back. That's about how the timeline I would give it. Do you think we can we can speculatively accelerate that timeline based on the level of technology they're bringing back from the Axiom and the fact that they have all of these helper robots to 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 help them with the project? That's very possible. I mean, I, I think that I was looking at this from the perspective starting over, you know, starting a civilization from the ground up kind of thing and looking mm. at our, our own human history. That's about how long it took some of the earliest civilizations to really master agriculture. Um, so yeah, I mean, with the technology and, and, you know, we even in, in modern technology or, um, in, in, you know, in the modern world, the technology that we use in agriculture only advances a lot of the stuff that we, you know, had compared to 10, you know, 20 years ago, because we have robots today that we're using to, to harvest crops and we're using to spray fields and we're using to monitor things. We're using drones in, in agriculture. So I think that if we're using technology similar to what we have today and actually probably even more advanced because the helper robots are a lot more intelligent. Um, yeah, we would probably be able to probably be able to accelerate that quite a bit. Um, and I actually didn't even think about this, but if the computers on the Axiom still work, they could reinvent culture from what they know it from the logs on the computer. So technically it wouldn't take as long for culture to kind of reestablish itself and for them to kind of relearn how to farm just because they would presumably have all the information they would need from their computer. So yeah, maybe, maybe it wouldn't take that long. The, the longest part would just be the, the soil region take a couple hundred years. Um, so from, from being able to farm period, they might be able to accomplish it in, you know, a couple generations to uh, two or three, maybe, but to get earth as a whole back to a, a, what, what I would consider a healthy place that might take a few hundred years. Awesome. I have two questions that I always ask. And the first one, I'm real. I'm actually really excited to ask you this question in particular. Okay. Um, this is a section of robots versus dinosaurs that we call What's your snack? So, Brendan, what's your snack? Uh, do you have a favorite movie snack for when you go to a movie theater? And when you watch movies at home, do you do you do the same like at home snack, or do you have a different snack at home? Um, 
And is it popcorn? <laughs> and what are so, your thoughts on movie popcorn? <laughs> so here's the thing. I absolutely adore popcorn. And, and, and I, I will I will be boring and say, yes, my movie snack is popcorn. Um, one of them. It's not my only one. But popcorn is my favorite movie snack. But the thing is, it's not just because it's you know the traditional movie snack. Popcorn is my favorite snack in general. I eat popcorn like almost on a daily basis and I have like the, the special movie theater butter and like, the, like I have special movie theater salt. That's like butter flavored salt. Like I go all out for my popcorn. Whoa. You know, I've, I have, I've done some research into the like different types of popcorn. I, I consider myself a popcorn connoisseur. So, okay. um, like What's the I, best one? what do you recommend? You know, it's, it's, it's been really tough. Um, Trader Joe's has this, uh, sea salt popcorn. That's just phenomenal. Um, the, the, if you're going for like movie theater popcorn though, I get Orville Redenbacher and I just like, I have a popcorn machine that I put it into and then I mix it. There's like a proper ratio of like butter to salt that I, that I do with it. And it's just so good. Occasionally, if I'm if I'm you know not in the mood for a lot of popcorn, but I want a little bit of a kick, I'll get kind of like half a bowl and I'll cover it in garlic salt, which is really good, but it, it kicks mm-hmm. a little bit harder. So I tend to not do that like with a full bowl, or else I'll just hurt my stomach. But yeah, no, it's popcorn is like my favorite. Also, if you're going for like non-traditional popcorn, zebra popcorn is my favorite, like non-traditional popcorn, which comes from uh, Popcornopolis. They have all kinds of different flavors and stuff. But zebra popcorn is the best. It's got white chocolate and it's got like chocolate drizzle on there. And it's, oh man, it's so good. Um, so, but if we're talking like just pure movie snack, yeah. Orville Redenbacher, you know, I actually have a, I have a death star, um, popcorn maker. My girlfriend got me awesome. for, for Christmas last year. So I, I use that and I, I make a, a bowl with, you know, with my movie theater butter. I actually think it's Orville Redenbacher butter, which is really good. And I can't remember for life me what the brand of the salt is, but there's this, I have this, uh, like butter flavored salt. that's really good, but it's like, a tiny smidgen of it is all you need because it gets really salty really quickly, which I have a very high salt tolerance and it's too much for me. Um, Mm. but yeah, so that's kind of my go-to if we're talking like candy though, or like uh, non-traditional snacks, I like eating beef jerky when I watch movies Mm. and I also like, um, bunch of crunch, like the little like crunch bites and stuff. Those are probably my two favorite when i was a kid i used to eat sweet tarts every single time i go to the movies and i can't really find the sweet tarts i used to get when i was a kid so i just switched over to bunch of crunch and now that's like my favorite candy ever so um yeah those are my those are my snacks good answer uh the next bonus question is if we were to replace any two characters in wally with Whoopi goldberg and danny devito who would you swap out and how would that improve the movie (laughs) so it, it was danny devito and who was the first one you cut out for a second Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, <laughs> um, honestly, I think there's only one right answer for this. Um, and I think it's John and Mary. Okay. I, I think that, I think that John and Mary would make perfect, or I think, I think that Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg would make a great John and Mary. Um, just because like, they're the only ones to get like, kind of like quips and funny lines throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Like the robots, like, you know, they're, they're fun, but like they barely make any noise or have any conversation. And with people like that, you want a lot of dialogue. So, mm-hmm. um, I would say it would have to be human characters because, you know, you, again, you want that dialogue. So the captain would be probably another choice I would go for, for Danny DeVito. But like, I just, I think that the captain is just very well played and I kind of like his whole, you know, I don't want to survive. I want to live like that, that line. Great I just line. can't see Danny DeVito saying it. It's just like, he's just so like the captain is the captain, you know, like he, he, you can't replace him. 
but I could mm. see like the the interaction between John and Mary when they're catching the kids and Mary makes a whole like John get ready to have some kids like <laughs> I can see Whoopi Goldberg saying that and it just being hilarious so nice. I, I would love to see if we if we were to place it with those two uh, those are John and Mary would be where I'd want to see them those are the roles I think they'd, they'd play best in good answer my my I would want Whoopi Goldberg's voice for Otto um just oh. <laughs> like not her doing a robot voice, just Whoopi Goldberg's voice, just her, her straight up and just let That'd her improvise funny. in the booth. Um, and then I want Danny DeVito as Mo. <laughs> I could see him as Mo. I, I, I would say if I, if I were to pick one of them and be a robot, I could see Danny DeVito as Mo. Oh, nice. That'd be funny. Uh, so my, my sort of rating system for movies is where we're, we don't really rate the movie. I just want you to rate the, the robots that appeared in this movie. And the rating system is, I'm just going to ask you, Brendan, would you give the robots in WALL-E plus one, neutral, or minus one? Ooh, plus one easily. They're fantastic. Awesome. Do you think, uh, since it's robots versus dinosaurs, and we've talked about a, a robot movie and a, and a dinosaur movie, um, you and I have, do you is one of those cooler than the other? man that's really hard i as a diehard wally fan um i'm i'm tempted to go down the robots route but i mean are we talking about this in the context of the movies that we discuss or just in general dinosaurs versus robots in general dinosaurs in general like as concepts but um but you you know feel free to use the movies as context or as as supporting evidence for your argument okay um, I, I will say, so I'm, I'm a very, I'm very much an animal person. I just, I love animals. I love working with them. Um, I'm considered a cow whisperer of sorts because I, I'm very good with animals and, and kind of like their behavior. I can, you know, if I'm in, if I'm in a pen full of cows, I can kind of tell you what they're thinking, what they're, what they're going to do, all that kind of stuff. So that tends me to go down the, the dinosaur route just because the dinosaurs are the holistic type ones. And I feel like I could, I could, because I'm basing this off of if I were to hang out with these two things, which one would I rather hang out with? Um, that's what I consider cool. I mean, like I would love to watch them, but like I would love to live with them kind of thing. Um, if I, I were living with the dinosaurs, I would feel comfortable to the, to the degree that I feel like I could probably kind of hold my own from a, you know, from a behavior perspective. Like I, I could kind of learn from them, which I think would be really cool. But I would love to hang out with Wally. Like the, the robots just have such a you know such a unique personality that I think is so fun and, and so goofy. And like if we're talking from a cool perspective, like yeah, dinosaurs are cool, but like robots, you can kind of customize them to do whatever you need them to do. So like robots kind of have that that diversity advantage to them. So it's really tough. Um, but I think I would I had both robots and dinosaurs growing up and, you know, as, as toys and stuff. And I always preferred my robot toys. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of the futurist stuff and also the prehistoric stuff. So it's, it's like a, it's, it's like a toss up for me, but I might have to go with the robots just for the sake of wanting a robot companion. I think it'd just be really cool. Um, and also if, if my robot companion was Wally, I would pick him every single day of the week just because he's Wally or, or Mo. I would, I would love to have a little Mo around my apartment too. That'd be cool. Oh, very cool. Awesome. Uh, well, Brendan, it was awesome talking to you again, and I uh, hope to have you on the podcast again sometime in the future. Um, why don't you tell the listeners where they can hear more about you and, uh, and, and remind them of the name of your podcast and, and uh, where they can find you online? Yeah, well, thanks. You know, thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Um, hopefully I didn't 
shouldn't uh, monologue for too long. Um, but yeah, my, my name is Brennan Black, and I'm the host of Talk Ag to Me. Uh, you can find my podcast anywhere you find podcasts. You know, it's on Apple Podcasts, Google, all of the places. It's also on YouTube and Spotify and all that fun stuff. Um, I'm also on pretty much every social media platform that exists. Uh, if you look up Talk Ag to Me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever, you're going to find me. Um, and I have a policy on my show where I don't turn down any conversations. So if any of you are curious about agriculture, have any questions, or if I brought up anything today that you wanted to know more about, or maybe you thought I was wrong on, then you know, reach out to me. Let's, let's, let's make an episode. I'm always happy to talk to more people, especially those who are passionate and interested in agriculture. So I think that kind of wraps up for me. Thanks again, Louis, for having me on here. Thanks for being on, Brendan. This was a fantastic conversation. And I think that people are going to learn a lot from this, this episode. <laughs> so thanks again for sharing all your insights about agriculture, about food, and about our relationship with food. Um, so have a great day. Thanks. You too. Wally Mo. The camera zooms in on me. So we get out. some high proof alcohol. We get gasoline. Anything that says what funny. makes our lives worth living is our mortality. If there were not mortality, we wouldn't be passionate. Luckily for me, most of the beauty pageants that I've um, participated in don't. I've done my fair share of blood, man. I've always liked showing myself off naked. Got up out of the seat, walked to me, and then slapped me. Spontaneous conversation with people from around the world on Stranger Than Christian. Available on your favorite podcast app and at strangerthanchristian.com.